Hey, thank you for joining me for our equip class. Uh, we are continuing on our study in the New Testament survey. And so hopefully as you are watching this video, I want you to also know that you can download uh, the handout, uh, print that off there from wherever you are uh, and follow along with this. Also, the notes are contained uh, in the post where you're watching this video. Uh, or if you are listening on the podcast right now, you can um, get it from rockycreek.church, uh, that website. You can go there and you'll be able to get all the handouts that you need. So today we're going to continue on our study in the New Testament survey. Uh, and uh, as we have started going through it, we did some unpacking of some of the major components of the New Testament. And then we started talking about the big 15, the New Testament overview. And these are the 15 keywords that we're using to kind of uh, guide ourselves walking through the New Testament. So if you know these 15 points, you're really going to truly understand the overall overarching narrative of the New Testament. So we talked about originally the incarnation, about when Jesus came, he made incarnate, he came and dwelt uh, in the flesh, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, came down. And so we talked about the significance of Jesus uh, coming. Uh, in the form of a human and being born as a baby and what that looked like. We talked about the preparation stage of the life of Jesus from age two to age 30 before his ministry began and also paving the way of John the Baptist. And then today we are going to talk about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is this is a um, very hard topic to go to because you talk about a three years that revolutionized the entire world. Uh, this is, uh, there's no way to really even put it into scope. Um, what that man, uh, our, our Jesus, did within three years. But we're going to try to navigate through it. So this is the third section in these three narrative points. And so we're going to talk about what it was like when Jesus started. Uh, once again, after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness, was tempted by Satan, and then he came back and he started a three-year span of ministry that has changed history forever. And so uh, to break it down, there's going to be three sections that we're going to highlight um, as you watch this or listen to this regarding uh, the ministry of Jesus. So let's talk about the first one here, which is the revelation of the Christ. So what did he reveal, right? The revelation is something that God brings down. So when I speak of the revelation of the Christ, I want to talk to you about Jesus's teaching ministry, because much of his three-year ministry was him doing more than just good deeds while he did that. Uh, it was him speaking, opening his mouth, and um, spreading the word of God in a way that everybody knew something was different um, than him because he said, this one teaches with authority. He's different. Um, and so he, he taught with authority, and, and it started really, uh, Jesus started his teaching ministry when he came to his hometown and was asked to read from the scriptures. This passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 22, uh, wonderful um story of when Jesus came in and hometown boy comes back uh, into the temple. And as he does this, they they call upon him to read the scriptures. And as he's reading the scriptures, uh, he, he goes to Isaiah, which speaks about the coming Messiah, the prophecy about the Messiah. And what he did in that moment was, is everybody's staring at him because there's something about the way that he said it resonated with people. They thought, this is different than just somebody reciting this. It's almost as if he's speaking about himself. And then he confirmed the suspicion. If any of you are wondering, this was just fulfilled in your hearing. In fact, this is what he says in Luke 4. Uh, the, the prophecy that he read from was Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the good news means gospel, the euangelion. The, this is when the, the king would send a messenger in to have a good news for the people. 
And so the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. That word anointed uh, is, can be used in the word Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one. Another word for Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, is the name Christ. Uh, when I was young, I remember thinking that Christ was Jesus' last name, but it's not exactly that. Uh, in fact, it, it means that he is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. So this passage from Isaiah 61 just happened to be the passage that Jesus turned to that day. Um, and, uh, he unrolled the scroll to it, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, so there's this moment, right, where they're saying, wow, this is incredible um, that, it, you know, Jesus, the way he read it, there was power when he read it. And Jesus is looking around, and everybody's staring at him and says, well, by the way, yeah, that prophecy that was spoken about the anointed one, the Messiah, that just got fulfilled right now. Mic drop moment, right? And everybody's staring at him. And one of the responses is that people said, well, is this not, isn't this Joseph's son? And on one end, you might think, well, they're just saying, hey, this is just the son of the carpenter. This is just Jesus from our hometown. Surely this can't be the Messiah. There's also another way to interpret that question because um, Joseph was of the lineage of King David. And so Joseph was of that line of that was prophesied that someone from David's family was going to come and reign and, and reign forever. And people believed that was the coming Messiah. And so uh, there's a lot of question early on about who Jesus is. But when he taught, he taught with authority in a way that, as he even spoke that first day, just to let people know this is a different time. What Jesus' teaching was characterized as having authority, unlike the scribes. That was the telling difference between him and all the other scribes, is that when the scribes taught, people listened. But when Jesus taught, it was something with authority. He's not making suggestions here. He is commanding our attention, commanding our allegiance, calling out to us. And so it was characterized that if, if there was anything that the people would say about Jesus' teaching, they said when he teaches, he teaches with authority. There's something different about him. And, of course, this causes the scribes, the Pharisees, to be very jealous of him because uh, his reputation is a lot better than uh, theirs. But also this is causing people to walk away, drift away from Jesus. Uh, I mean, drift away from the scribes to Jesus, and they become very jealous of him. But Jesus also, not only did he teach with authority, but he was teaching for change. Uh, Jesus' teaching raised the bar concerning holiness. Um, Matthew 5, 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the most uh, quoted sermon in the history of mankind. I would call the greatest sermon in all the world. Uh, I'm planning on uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount uh, here, hopefully in a few months. And um, Lord willing, and, and one of the things is I thought about calling the sermon uh, series the greatest sermon ever, but that might be a little pretentious for people to think, but I'm not talking about the sermons that I'll give. I'm talking about the sermon that Jesus gave. And so when I say he raised the bar is that one of the key moments in, um, in his sermon is he says, okay, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. And everybody goes, yeah, well, of course you know that. That's the sixth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. He says, all right, you've heard it said that. Let me tell you something. If you have hatred in your heart, you're basically in the same position. He, he raises the bar. For those who were very um, braggadocious about the fact that they had never murdered anyone, he said, yeah, but do you hate someone? Uh, do you let you, the, the anger in your heart fester because it's, it's a heart issue? It's not just a, a hand issue. 
Uh, he says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And everybody goes, that's right. Commitment number seven. I've kept that my entire life. He goes, well, I'm just telling you, if you have lust after somebody in your own heart, you're guilty of the same thing. And, and so when he when he teaches, he, he, he taught for change. And people were thought, we've never heard anybody speak like this. This is so unique. It's so different. And at Jesus' transfiguration, uh, the Father told the disciples to listen to him. One of these key moments in Jesus' ministry is that he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. They see him. He, he, his appearance changes. They see two witnesses there that they can determine is uh, Moses and Elijah, which is the law and the prophets. And they are overwhelmed by this. And, and all of a sudden, there's this voice that they hear from heaven says, this is my son. Listen to him. And why is that important? Well, this is kind of like what happened at Jesus' baptism, except there's a little difference this time. Where at Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Now this says, This is my beloved Son, I'm well pleased. But listen to him. He has words that you need to listen to. More than just, yeah, I heard his teaching, I heard his sermon. Like, are you applying? Like, you, you pay attention to what he's saying, and you follow it because this is life-giving. And so the Father is telling the disciples, and it was something that was passed on to many disciples, that when Jesus taught, you need to listen to him. And it's more than just hear, right? It's more than just, yeah, I heard it coming. No, 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 you actually listen to him. But Jesus' teaching often caused the crowds to decrease instead of increase. And you may think that's unique, but while Jesus' ministry was always um, swelling with anticipation, and there was continual more and more people who were following him, there's also some times where it almost seems like he was trying to weed out people uh, and almost intentionally scare some folks off, which sounds very unique because you think, man, we're starting a, some type of spiritual revolution here, Jesus. We need to keep as many people as we can. But Jesus wasn't necessarily worried about the number of people that he had. He was more concerned with the manner of the people that he had. He was much more intent on the disciples he was making rather than the crowds he was gathering and so a lot of times he would, he would call out and just, um, he, he would say something that very, very difficult that make the crowds decrease instead of increase. Give you a great example from John chapter six, John chapter six, um, people are coming for another free meal. Jesus has fed the 5,000. They're looking for more bread and they're saying, Jesus, we want bread. Uh, you gave us bread last time. We heard about what happened to the crowd over there. Why don't you give us bread again and we'll believe you. And Jesus says, you want bread? He said, yeah, we want bread. He goes, well, I am the bread of life. And they think, well, that's kind of weird. It, they were at an actual festival that they were celebrating uh, bread and uh, as part of the, the celebration. And Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life. They're like, no, we're, we're wanting bread. He goes, I am the bread. I'm the thing that's supposed to sustain you more than anything else, okay? Uh, in, in the Old Testament, they had manna. And then at that feeding I did, yeah, I, I gave you enough bread. But if you really want to live, if you really want to know the abundant life, then you need to do something very different. And that is consume me. And this is where it gets weird. This is, it sounds like cannibalism, but what he says is, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And everybody goes, okay, well, that's when we're going to look for the exit sign and we're heading out of here. Uh, this was just such a weird statement for Jesus to make, but all these people were coming for what Jesus could do for them. Uh, for the next free meal, for the next healing, for the next miraculous deed to get to rally the troops together. And Jesus says, listen, all those are signs to me. And at the end of the day, if all you're after are the signs, they're not going to take you that far. The signs are pointing to me. And if you want anything to sustain you, you don't need another free meal for me. You need me. 
You need to consume yourself with me. And so when Jesus said those statements, hey, you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no part in me. The crowd thinned out, right? People are going, well, we came for the free meal, and now this guy's talking crazy, and, and they, they walked away. And, and so when many disciples walked away at the hard teachings, Jesus looked at them and says, all right, boys, any of you guys want to go too? I mean, basically, Jesus says, look at all the crowds. They're, they all came for the free meal. And they've been hanging around now for teaching for a while. But now I'm starting to get into the meat of why I'm here. I'm starting to push in a little bit. And now they're pushing back. Boys, there's the door. If you want to leave, you can leave. It's completely fine if you need to go. And this is what Peter said. This is one of the best statements that Peter ever said. Most of the times, you're kind of cringing. Don't know exactly what he's going to say. But Peter said it this way. To whom else can we go? You have words of eternal life in John 6, 68. He goes, where else are we going to go? We've left everything. I, I left my, my, my family fishing business. I've, I've left my reputation. I, I've left everything to follow you. Where else can we go now? We've, we've burned all the bridges that we can burn. But also, we know this. You have words of eternal life. Once you have tasted and seen the word of the living word of God, Jesus in the flesh, he goes, what are we going to go back to? I mean, mediocre religious teachers, people who are putting their traditions on top of commandments. No, no, no. We can't, we can't go back now. You have words of eternal life. This is life changing and life giving. And, and where else can we go now? Cause we've, we've heard you and we we've, we've seen what you can do. And so there, there's no going back for us here. So even while the crowds thin, what was happening was is that Jesus was upping the level of intensity for those that did follow him. You know, when you go through this situation, one of the other things that's um, important for you to know is that Jesus taught in parables. Um, parables were these kind of um, a story with a spiritual truth to it that was easy, especially in this very oral culture, to, to communicate to other people. So uh, it's one thing to say, well, I'm going to give you a 17-point bullet list of what, what it means to live in the kingdom. But Jesus would often say, hey, guys, you, you see that tree over there? You know what, where, what seed that comes from? Let me show you. Let me show you. And, and, and he'd say, well, you see that mountain over there? Or you see that flock of sheep over there? You see that tree over there? Like he was always using um, visible illustrations, uh, things that were right there in front of him. But he would teach in parables that would get their attention, but also was allowing them to understand, I think, in, in a more concrete way. Um, I learned this, and this is one of the complexities, honestly, as a pastor, that sometimes you, you find a really good illustration that you think drives home the point, and you don't want the illustration to drive the text, but sometimes a lot of people say, you know that time when when you, you, uh, you use this illustration, like it connected with me. And so an illustration should be something that should draw you closer to the truth and, and not distract you from it, but it can be a hard line. Well, Jesus would teach these parables in such a way like, hey, a, a sower went out to sow some seed along in the field, and here's what happened. And there's four types of uh, things that took place as a result of that. And guess what? There's four types of spiritual folks listening to me right now, and you need to figure out which one you are. So he, he often spoke in these parables so that those with kingdom eyes could understand. That's why he said in Matthew 13, there's a lot of people confused about his teachings. And one time someone said, Jesus, why, why do you keep teaching in parables? This is difficult. And he says, well, I'm teaching that way so that the people that are kingdom folks, they'll understand it. The people who aren't won't get it. 
And all the disciples go, okay, yeah, that, that's good. And inwardly, this is just so hilarious. They're going, so you mean to tell me you're teaching such a way that only kingdom folks will get it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You just imagine somewhere along the way, they start looking at each other and saying, so did you understand what he was saying right there? No, I didn't either. And and they don't get it. So yet even his disciples had to have private explanations from time to time. In Mark chapter four, you, you see this moment of when basically Jesus has been teaching parables uh, and the people, uh, his disciples, they're the ones that are supposed to get it and they're not. Okay. So let me read this to you in Mark four. Verse 10, it says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables, right? And then he, so he comes out and he explains it. So he, he had to share this. And so some of the disciples, even the ones that were supposed to get it, they didn't always get it, but he's using these things. Obviously you think about well, Mark and Matthew wrote their gospel somewhere between 20 and 30 years after the time of Jesus was dead. Um, I can pretty much guarantee that I doubt anybody's going to remember an outline of something I preached uh, 20 to 30 years after I'm dead. Pretty sure that's not going to happen. But Jesus taught these powerful parables that just got stuck in their head. And every time they would pass a fig tree, they thought about the time that he cursed it. Every time they'd go by and see a door, a shepherd there uh, serving as the door of the flock of sheep, they would think about Jesus. Every time they'd see a vine and branches, they'd think about Jesus. There are these ways that he just taught that just stuck with them. Uh, Jesus' utilizing parables made his lessons memorable and it explained those hidden things. And so even when the disciples came up and said, we don't get it, Jesus said, well, let me explain it to you. And when he did, they were able to, I think, it made that content um, not even more, it was theological, it was practical, but also it was portable. They could go and tell that story, right? They could, they could say, well, Jesus is the bread of life. Or let me tell you about this, this guy who one day found this treasure and he sold everything he had. Uh, so he could buy this field because he knew that's where the treasure was. Like, that was a story that just stuck, and it and it made it was able to communicate it in an oral culture that wasn't on the printing press, wasn't around, uh, but especially to a lot of guys who had fields and had you know different things like this, and they would understand that, and it, it just made a lot better sense for the way that Jesus communicated. And in the issue of the the guy who uh, sold everything he had and bought the field so he could find the the hidden treasure. It'd be one thing if Jesus just said to his disciples one day, hey, kingdom of heaven is so important, it's better than anything else in the world. Okay, that's good. But when he said it this way, it's like a guy found a treasure in a field. He looked around, didn't see anybody. He dug a hole, he buried it there, and asked the guy how much that field he was selling it for. And he sold everything that he had, and he did it with joy. Why? Because he knew the treasure that was in that field. That's a story you can remember. And that's a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Now, one of the things that you look at in Jesus' ministry uh, is that some of the things that he did say, obviously, we quote a lot, and some of the things can be quite shocking sometimes. Um, I, I love to do this activity just for time's sake. We're not going to do it, but I'm going to uh, show it to you. Um, there is a, a list of um, statements that I like to share with people called, uh, did Jesus really say that? And they're just a list of different statements that uh, you have to determine if Jesus said them or not. And a lot of times I like to give the quiz and then reveal the answer, but through this medium, we're not going to do this, but I'm going to let you kind of see them because some of the more shocking statements are the ones that Jesus actually said. 
Uh, we'll go through them really quick. Number one, let the dead bury their own dead. He said it in Matthew 8, 22, because basically people were using dead ancestors as a excuse for not following him. Uh, number two, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. He did say that because of how serious anger led to murder and, and that showed an unrepentant heart. Uh, number three, accept me as your personal Lord and Savior and you shall inherit eternal life. Never said that. That phrase isn't in the Bible, actually. Number four, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He said that in Matthew 16, 24. And that's a shocking statement, honestly, at a time where the crucifixion uh, was, was known for the worst of criminals. Number five, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Jesus said that in response of don't giving your best stuff away to those people who aren't going to get it, which is kind of hard to hear. Um, above all, love one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. He didn't say it, but Peter did in 1 Peter 4, 8. Uh, number seven, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said that. Hey, when you're doing kingdom work, you be as shrewd as snakes. You be really wise, okay? In, in fact, of you think through what's the best way to do certain things. Be innocent in your actions, but be shrewd. Uh, be very wise and, and cunning. And even your kingdom activity is what he's saying. Like, be smart about this stuff, but be innocent in the way that you do it. Uh, number eight, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Did Jesus actually say that? He did at Matthew 10, 34, saying, look, you follow me, and it's going to cause division between you and other people. Uh, number nine, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You've already heard me reference that in John 6, 53. Ten, if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Jesus said that at Matthew 6, 15, such a complex passage, but so needed for us. Number 11, surely he didn't say this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, but Jesus said that in Matthew 15, 24. At the beginning of his ministry, he started with the people of Israel and then eventually moved his way out beyond that. Uh, number 12, the Lord helps those who help themselves. That's not it. Jesus didn't say it. Nobody said that. Nobody in the Bible said that. Okay, it's not in there. 13, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me, Matthew 25, 36. And you go, well, no, Jesus was never... We saw sick or in prison. What, what, what is this? No, he's saying that uh, when you do something to people who are destitute, it's like you're doing a gift to me. 14, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Oh, that can't be Jesus. That, that sounds too um, name it, claim it, right? No, in John 14, 14, he did say it. Uh, 15, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel? Yes, he said that. Uh, and it was talking about don't get stuck in the, um, the smaller portions uh, get fixated on that where you can't actually follow the real stuff, right? The major things. 16, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Jesus said that in Luke 13, 32, talking about the governmental leader who could have let him go. And he goes, you tell that fox, I'll be there when I'm good ready. When I'm, when I'm ready to die, I'll die. Until then, I'm going to stay here. Uh, 17, follow me and I will prosper thee. Jesus didn't say that. Number 18, whoever does not receive you, shake the dust off your feet. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than them in the day of judgment. Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 14, 15. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24. Anyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say that. In fact, he said, you can call me Lord and it doesn't mean you're getting in. It's something even deeper than that. Uh, 21, I have come to bring fire on earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Luke 12, 49, he said it. Uh, number 22, I came to abolish the law. Jesus didn't say it. In fact, he said, I came to fulfill it. 23, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Jesus said it, Luke 21, 25. 
Um, I will never put more on you than you can bear. He did not say that. In fact, I think sometimes he does quite the opposite, so we will come to him. Number 25, depart from me. You are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He said it in Matthew 25, 41. Uh, 26, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Yep, Matthew 5, 29. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. He said it in Luke 16, 18. Uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus said it, Luke 14, 26. Be perfect? Surely he didn't say that. He did in Matthew 5, 48. And then number 30, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 5. Now, I bring this out to show Jesus said some very controversial stuff, some very hard stuff. And even if you look at these, some of these you might say, that's challenging. And I don't know if I understand it. And if I understand it the way I think I do, I don't know if I agree with it. You've got to unpack it because Jesus' teaching ministry was critical, uh, but it also was controversial in some ways. I do want to show you this chart uh, between about the synoptic gospels regarding the parables. Uh, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if we look just back at the parables, you'll notice something um, significant. If you remember that we said Mark was the shortest of the Gospels, and you can see why he was very action-oriented to the Romans that he was writing to. And so he didn't have a whole lot of teaching material. Do you notice how many parables that Mark talks about? One, two, three, four, five. About five parables is, is all that he, he has in his Gospel, right? Um, and yet... Um, Matthew has all of these first ones here, and then there's this batch of ones that Luke has that no one else has. If you notice, the Good Samaritan, the Rich Fool, the Barren Fig Tree, Prodigal Son, uh, Rich Man of Lazarus, the different things like this. So there's all these passages that you notice, but out of these parables were an incredible teaching ministry of Jesus. I just changed everything. Um, but the second element of his ministry that I want to point out, after, after we look at what is the revelation of the Christ, that teaching ministry, I want to talk about the supplication of the Christ. The supplication is a word that, that infers praying. Uh, you are calling out, you're pleading with God about something. And this is what's so pivotal about ministry of Jesus. While he was God in the flesh, he based his ministry on prayer. Um, so much so that it was really, I would say, one of, if not the defining aspects of his ministry was his commitment to prayer and the way that he taught others to pray. In fact, if you look at Luke 5, 16, it says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This was a habit of his. Jesus was consistently withdrawing himself from the crowds to desolate places and pray. And so many of us that we struggle because when there's a crowd together, you want to just keep the momentum going and continue to do more things so people will keep coming back. And a lot of times at the height of ministry, the height of momentum, Jesus would withdraw by himself or pull his disciples and say, okay, that's enough for the day. Where are we going next? You know, is there something exciting we're going to do? Yep, we're going to talk to God. We're going to talk to our Father. And, uh, and he would begin to pray. Let me show you some of the ways that Jesus prayed. Uh, we saw that Jesus prayed alone. If you look at these verses of Scripture there that's mentioned, uh, Matthew 14, 23, Mark 135, Luke 9, 18, and 22, 39 through 41. There were times where Jesus would leave the disciples and they wake up early in the morning, they couldn't find him. And they would know he had specific places he liked to pray. He had favorite prayer spots, which I think is pretty uh, neat and telling about it. But Jesus also prayed in public in John eleven forty one 41 through 42, and chapter 12, verse 27 through 30. He had no problem saying, hey, let me pray right now. And sometimes he would even pray like this way. God, I'm praying this way so these people can hear this, okay, so they know that I'm talking to you and, and know how I pray. Uh, we, we, we see him pray before meals, uh, Matthew 26, uh, Mark 8, Luke 24, and John 6. 
We see him pray before important decisions, like in Luke 6, 12 through 13. Jesus spent all night um, up and didn't go to sleep one night so he could choose which 12 were going to be his disciples. And here's a question that you have to answer. Did Jesus require a night full of prayer to decide that Peter was going to be a disciple? I will answer that as no. Jesus did not need to pray that long for an important decision, but he knew that we would need to commit to prayer before such a important decisions. And so he, he was an example. He modeled that for us that before a major decision of which I guarantee he knew what he was going to do, he prays all night because a way to say, guys, when hard decisions come, you might want to do more than just offer up the 15 second prayer and say, God, help me. You might really need to get on your knees on your face before the Lord and really do some work there. Uh, he prayed before healing. Um, once again, I don't think that he was requiring God to give him some special amount of power to do something. He's God in the flesh. He was doing this as an example for us. He would pray after a healing. He'd go and withdraw and, uh, and spend some time in prayer just to reflect and talk to his father. And he also prayed to do the Father's will, as was mentioned in Matthew 26, 36 through 44. Uh, I've just got, I, I, Father, this is, I know this is the plan, but if there's another way, but he, he keep me on your will. Not my will, but yours will be done. And, and so this is the way that he showed an example. Jesus' life was just littered with prayer, right? It just was the foundation of it. Um, and what's also beautiful is that in heaven, Scripture tells us that he now lives to make intercession for us. In Hebrews 7, 25, it says it this way, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ, his, his, his job right now in heaven is that he lives to make intercession, to pray. Uh, and you might think, well, what is he praying for? Well, one time you remember that he prayed for Peter and said, hey, Peter, Satan's asking for you. He wants you, boy, but I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Uh, he prayed for us in John chapter 17. He prayed for the disciples and those who'd come behind him. That would be us. And so now we even know that it's said in heaven that, that Jesus is praying for us. And so right now you may have never thought about this way. Uh, I'm always relieved when I know someone is praying for me. Um, in fact, uh, one of the stories I, I love to share was there's this lady that lives in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, that whenever I go and speak somewhere that she's at, she'll come up to me and, and she'll She'll talk with me, and um, one day she told me, she says, Travis, I heard you speak a few years ago, and I want to let you know that I pray for you every Tuesday. And I said, really? And she goes, yep, because I have you and somebody else that I pray for every Tuesday morning that God would use you and whatnot. She's saying all these wonderful things. In the back of my mind, I'm like, well, who else is she praying for? Like, I kind of want to know who's my partner, right? And I just said, I said, well, who else do you pray for on Tuesday? She said, oh, that's easy, you and Tim Tebow. I said, ah. There you go. So me and Tebow, and uh, we're, we're, we're getting prayed for. And so there's something amazing that when I know, and, and she's told me at different times that she's changed the day from Tuesday to Thursday or something like this. But when I know that this lady who loves to pray is praying for me, uh, especially on those days, like I kind of feel like, come on, devil, like bring it, right? Like I'm ready to go. When you know there are people who are praying for you, when I have just wonderful godly folks in our church who come up and they ask for prayer requests or they say we pray for you every night and I have those people in my life, when people say, I hear great things that's happening at Rocky Creek, what's going on there? I often say, our people pray. And uh, and so much of what's happening is because people are praying for us. And so when you know that somebody's praying for you, it just gives you such boldness. And I think maybe it just gives you so much peace 
And it's wonderful when you have godly people pray for you or people that you look up to or people that you love. But just think about this. Jesus prays for you. Like out of any prayer partner that you could ever have signed up on your list, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us. And he lives in heaven right now. And there's been a time where he's been praying for you. Maybe when you thought nobody else had remembered you, I guarantee this, Jesus has been praying for you. Find great comfort and just awe and all of that. It's just amazing. Um, and think about it this way. When we think about the prayers of Jesus, I love to ask this question. If we were on the room together, I'd ask you this and I'd want a response. But what are some of the amazing things that the disciples witnessed Jesus to? So when I ask that question, a lot of times, here's the response. What are some of the amazing things that disciples witness Jesus do? People would say, well, he, you know, he fed 5,000 men and with women and children. And, uh, he, he walked on water. Uh, he was transfigured. Uh, he healed this sickness. And he, and he did this miraculous thing. Like there's plenty of things that you might think through, right? Uh, he, uh, the guy, Malchus, who got his ear chopped off by Peter, he put the ear back on. Like there's some amazing things that the disciples witness Jesus do. So, so here's the follow-up question. With all the disciples experienced uh, throughout their following of Jesus, you would think that if they were to ask him, Jesus, we've seen you do a lot of things. Can you teach us how to do something? You never see a disciple recorded as saying, Jesus, will you teach us how to preach like you do? Jesus, uh, will you teach us how to do this miraculous thing that you do? This is what you see. There's one time where it seems like the disciples asked Jesus to show them how to do something, and it's this. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So speaking of John the Baptist, they said, look, we know that John the Baptist taught his disciples how he prayed, but we know this. When we watch you and all, all the wonderful things you do, we're not asking you to show us how to feed 5,000. We're not asking you show us how to walk on water. We want, we're begging you, teach us how to pray. Because when you pray, stuff happens, right? So if there's anything we're going to request, anything we want to be under your tutelage, we want you to teach us. Uh, we want you to teach us how to pray. And so Jesus did. At this time, this is when Jesus gave what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, where he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, here's what we've done. Uh, when Jesus gave these words, look at this, this opening statement right here and, and make sure that you get something. And I'm going to underline it for you here where he says, pray then like this. Okay. He says, like, he did not say, pray this, pray this every time memorize this and just say it right now is it bad to recite the lord's prayer absolutely not something beautiful it's scripture quote scripture all the time that that's great to do but is that what jesus was after that in certain parts of the service we would just begin to recite the lord's prayer no it's not what he's doing here is he's showing you a template to get your mind off of yourself to get your prayers focused to god to look at a corporate level of things um, and, and, and just to really truly understand things through this. And so he's saying, pray then like this, here's a template prayer. And so what you see is there, there's a lot of things that you, you could go for here, but just a couple of comments before we, we look deep down into this, but he starts off by speaking to our father, which would have been a shock to a lot of people, but also once you notice this, he goes, our father, 
in heaven. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. You never find singular pronouns in the Lord's Prayer, singular first-person um, pronouns. What do you find? Plural. You go, why is that important? Because Jesus was teaching, stop making your prayers just about you. <laughs> stop just being, God, help me. Help me in this. Help me in this. Help me in this. There should be some community component to your prayers so that when you pray, I'm not just praying, give me my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. Not just forgive me. You know, forgive us, God. So there's this idea. But if you look at the first few verses, I mean, the our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's he's starting the prayer, not focused on himself or even the group. He's focusing on the Lord, uh, our Father. And so this is an important thing that Jesus is teaching right out of the gate. Um, the, the time that you pray, you should have some aspect of just honoring God more than anything else because it'll sort of unpack the way that you need to pray for the rest of the time. In fact, here's kind of how we'll break it down. Uh, and this is just a simple way to look at what are the, the template things that Jesus was doing? What were the things that he was trying to get across? Well, the first one is honoring God, where he says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Set apart is your name. Um, so, so he starts off his prayer with worship, with praise, with adoration. So the question is, for what reasons do you have to honor God today? I would encourage you that the next time you pray, uh, don't just jump past the, well, God is great, God is good, or whatever it is. It's like, God, you've been so good to us today because of this, and I just want to thank you because you're that. Sometimes when my prayers get stagnant, I'll do the alphabet praise, where I'll just take every letter of the alphabet and begin to think of an adjective of who God is. God, A, you are awesome, and I just want to thank you. I've seen you at work today. And B, you are, you're beautiful. You, you, you shine brighter and more uh, glorious than anything else is in this world. Uh, C, God, you are consistent in a world that is just full of just people being inconsistent. You're consistent. And what's happening is I'm honoring God, our father who, but my dad, he, he's not only my dad, but he lives in heaven. As I'm praising God, what's happening is that the next stage of my prayers is not going to seem far-fetched because I'm reminding myself of who he is. I'm reminding myself that my father lives in heaven. Like Our father lives in heaven, so what on my prayer list can he not do? And so it starts your prayers off from this wonderful perspective. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this part is committing to follow God's will. You ask the question, is there anything that you need to change? And you go, well, where do you get that from? He says, our prayer should be, God, we want your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Let me tell you something. In heaven, when God wants something, it gets done. The angels are forming a stampede to see who gets to go there first. So the prayer is this. God, the same type of way that the angels come along and show allegiance to you, God, let that be seen in our lives. Like, God, let that type of obedience be present on earth among us. Then he says, give us this day our daily bread. This is him depending upon God's provision. What needs do you need to put in the hands of God? I just remind you that when he prayed, he says, give us, plural, uh, today's bread. He did not ask for tomorrow's butter or tomorrow's jelly. He says, give me what I need today. Don't give me what I want for tomorrow. And that's important for you to remember. A lot of the times the stuff that we pray for is stuff that honestly are not needs. They are wants or desires, and they might even be future-oriented. And while God can handle that, 
you need to be dependent upon him now, that daily manner to come down and say, God, if you don't feed me, I'm not going to eat. Like, I know that. Uh, so you're depending upon God's provision. The thing that you're concerned about right now, job, medicine, um, uh, food, some type of need that you have, the bills be paid. Have you prayed about it? Have you said, God, meet my needs? I, I need you to meet uh, not only my needs, but our needs. I need this to be something that as you bless me, it allows me to bless other people so that all of our needs are met. And so, God, I know that all I need today to feed my family is one loaf of bread, but if you give me two today, maybe there's somebody else who needs that other one. That's you start saying, give us this day our daily bread. And he says, forgive us as we've forgiven our debtors. Uh, this impact of forgiving others, who do you need to forgive? This is not a fun part in prayer because do I really want to pray to say, God, will you show me the level of forgiveness that I show other people? Uh, that's a, What is God doing? He's saying, don't have any relational issues that you're not uh, fleshing out and addressing. So he says, make it right. Don't just talk to me uh, when you've got issues with a brother or sister in Christ, with your spouse, with a family member, with a friend, with a church member. You go and get that stuff done. He says, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a keeping us from temptation. You pray, God, are there any danger areas? You're saying, God, if there are danger areas, show me where they are. Keep me from them. And then also there's the ending of the prayer. There, and some of the uh, original manuscripts or some of the manuscripts would say, uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's this praising God that just once again, you, you start in worship. It's a good place to end. But you see this, that Jesus is, uh, prayer life was such a huge component of what his ministry was like. Also telling us, if you want to do something for God, if you want to live the kingdom life, you better be talking to the king then uh, along the way. So we, we talked about the revelation of the Christ, the teaching, the supplication of the Christ, the, the prayer side, and then we talked about the manifestation of the Christ. How did the Messiah manifest himself, show himself strong, like present himself in amazing ways. And the way he did this was he did things that nobody else could do. They just shocked and awed. And it wasn't the end of itself. It was to cause them to be in awe of him rather than what he did. Um, Jesus showed that he could perform the impossible. Luke 18, 27, he said it. Hey, look, with, with man, this stuff is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And and so when, when the impossible would happen, um, people were just amazed by it. And it was showing um, them what they could do um, being aligned with what God was doing. You want to see the miraculous happen? Well, guess what? If you're with God and, and this is in God's will, anything can happen, right? There's nothing that's too hard for him. Uh, his miracle or sign part of his ministry was to increase people's faith. Um, this is a lot of times we talk about the miraculous nature of it, but Jesus a lot of times will call it sign. It's, it's pointing to something else. This healing was great for someone who, uh, if they could never walk, they could walk. That's wonderful. But what it was about was really to be a sign to say, God has the authority to make broken stuff new again. And there's coming a uh, new heaven and a new earth where all of those physical infirmities are going to be gone. And so it was a sign to something else. It was a sign to the true kingdom that we are living in already, but not yet completely. And it was to increase people's faith. I love in Mark 9, 23, where someone says, well, Jesus, if you can, and Jesus quips back and goes, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you believe me? Do you believe that I can do this? And so there was always this opportunity that rise up faith, rise up your faith that when you see him move, the next obstacle shouldn't seem that big of a deal, but that's not always the way it happened. Now, let me let me show you this, this chart here. 
to see some stuff, but if we look at some of the miracles that are present, um, we, we see these four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you notice like a lot of these miracles that are shared between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John doesn't record, showing us once again why these things are called the synoptic gospels, these first three, and John was written uh, a couple of decades later, and he didn't feel like he needed to address the things that these three guys addressed very well to their own different audiences, and this work had had moved along in a lot of different ways, right? And and so there was a um, a real good piece of this where they would continue to see. Um, so as it goes on from there, um, let me show you another thing, these 11 through 20 miracles that are mentioned there. Um, I You see, this, once again, a lot of these aren't there in John. I, I mentioned here feeding the 5,000. Besides Jesus' resurrection, this is the only miracle that all four Gospels report on. And I think the only reason why John does it, because most of the times he's like, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered it. I don't need to cover it. I think this time he covered it because it was uh, setting up the uh, context for when Jesus said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm the bread of life. It's not that stuff I gave to you yesterday, right? Um, I also highlighted this this component uh, here in Luke about raising uh, Jairus's daughter to life, uh, and the reason why I, I wanted to point this one out, uh, you don't really see it, Matthew, Mark. I just think Luke's a little more descriptive in it uh, as a doctor. But this is a situation where a guy named Jairus comes up, and his twelve-year-old daughter is dying. Jesus is on the way to go help her, and then all of a sudden, a woman who has an issue of blood for twelve years. This is not a life and death situation, but it sure is an inconvenient situation, an annoyance for. She's had it for 12 years, the same time that this girl grows alive. And what happens is this woman stops him, grabs the fringe of his cloak. She's healed, stops procession. Jesus talks to her uh, because they pause. The little girl dies and everybody goes, oh, you can't handle this. And Jesus is going, no, nah, she's, she's not dead. She's asleep. I'll get there to it. And, and while I'm pointing this passage out is because in these miraculous things, there are some of these things that are life and death, and some of these things are a little bit more of an inconvenient nature and maybe not as um, intense as some of the other ones. But what you see is that Jesus wasn't hindered by any of them. He wasn't annoyed by any of them. And in fact, he would come alongside and address them all. And, uh, and he never, and I think what's beautiful is uh, a little hidden thing that, that these guys, the gospel writers kind of point out, it's really the only time that Jesus ever calls someone daughter. And what's beautiful is that he's on the way to go see Jairus's daughter. And he looks at this woman who has this issue of blood. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Kind of giving a little, uh, a wink towards this guy to say, all these kids are like, all of these people are like my, my children. Like I see it as that. And so in the way that you're concerned about your child, I'm concerned about this one as well. Um, let me show you just a couple other things. Um, there's a unique, a miracle that happens where Jesus goes and tells Peter to go find the temple tax and go look in a fish's mouth. Interesting that only the tax collector is the one who reports on that one. Mark, Luke, John, leave it out. But the money guy's like, are you kidding me? That, that actually happened. Um, and then I'm showing you this. There's, there's a, a great number of healings that only Luke reports on. And, and just to show you what I think this is miraculous that Matthew, Mark, and John don't, Luke, who is a physician, a doctor, is kind of spellbound by it. And so he includes more um, healings than these other guys. In fact, if you look, same thing. Here's heals a man with drops on the Sabbath, cleanses 10 lepers. These are things that the other gospels don't include. Um, and then also, if you see this, the second miraculous catch of fish that 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John have. Only John reports that one because, number one, he was there, and it's the kind of fishing story that fishermen love to tell, right? Um, but no matter the amazing nature of these miracles, Jesus' followers had a difficult time trusting in him when the next impossible situation presented itself. They were very um, in awe one moment and then fearful the next. And this is the, probably the best way I can show it about how Jesus feeds the multitudes. If I remember the first time I started reading the Bible that I was kind of shocked at something because when I, I was reading through Matthew and I, and I saw where Jesus fed the 5,000 and all of a sudden the next chapter over, uh, the subheading said Jesus feeds the 4,000. I thought, is this a typo? Like I just read this, but this is less people. What happened here? This is shocking. In the first meal that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 14, um, there are five loaves of bread and two fish in the crowd, and there's 5,000 men listening with the women and children. Uh, some conservative estimates would say there might have been 20,000 people present. Um, there was Messiah that was there, which always changes the equation a little bit, and there were 12 small baskets left over. And so you think this is pretty miraculous, and what's crazy is that the next chapter over, I don't know how long in between these two events, but here's the second meal happens. If you notice, there are 4,000 men compared to the 5,000 last time. So if you still take that formula, you're probably talking 16,000 people instead of 20,000 people. So how many loaves of bread did you have? You had seven compared to the five, a few fish, which means at least more than two compared to the two last time. So get this, in this second situation, less people more resources, and yet they still look at Jesus and say, and where do you expect us to find enough food to feed all these people? So like they had seen Jesus do the miraculous, but they had spiritual amnesia. That as soon as the next crisis hit, it was almost as if they had just forgotten what he could do or what he had done. And this was probably one of the most shocking things about it, um, Jesus uh, for the disciples. But Jesus was also aware of those who were following his signs and not actually him. In John 2, 23 through 25, it, it says something very shocking where it says that the people were believing Jesus, but the language really implies that Jesus wasn't believing them. And you go, what does that mean? It means this, that people were believing in Jesus because what he could do, and yet Jesus knew that they were there for the party. They were there for the show. They were there for the handout. And he said, I don't believe them. I don't entrust myself to them. Why? Because I know what's in the heart of them, and they're just here for the handout. They're not here um, for the Savior. And so he could tell the difference between those that were there for the show and those that were there for him. And and one of the things I think that is important for us to always remember, but Jesus said to him, uh, this is Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And in this moment, Jesus is kind of talking about us, right? Because if we believe that Jesus rose from the grave, one of the greatest miracles uh, that's ever taken place. Uh, he says, Thomas, so you're, you think you're blessed because you've seen me, but there's going to be another blessing of those who believe and yet they haven't seen. And so there are certain things that we read about Scripture that we haven't seen with our eyes, but we believe with faith. And the question is this, do you believe that Jesus can do these things that we mentioned in this ministry section, that, that he had this teaching, this revelation of Christ that was so unique and just changed everything. Uh, there was a supplication of Christ, the way that he prayed, the way that he gave himself to prayer and modeled that for us. But then also the manifestation, the way that he presented himself and, and changed the situations. And so in that three-year span, um, whole region just just going bananas over this, this carpenter, right, from, from Nazareth. 
that was doing just the miraculous time and time again. And he was healing and he was helping the broken and restoring those that were so far off. And in this ministry garnered the attention of uh, disciples and also opponents alike, but there was no denying that there was something unique about him. And what this was causing people to do is they couldn't deny his power, but now they'd have to evaluate, do I believe that this, he really is who he says he is. And we have to do the same thing. Uh, as we look at that three-year span of ministry that we're still talking about 2,000 years later in a different country, in a different language, we have to say something took place back there uh, that just changed life. And that if Jesus is who he says he is and still alive today, then what can't he do? What is too hard for him? And I would say nothing. And so um, we, as we think and we model that and and even pray to God, we, we don't pray to a weak God who's unable to do things, who's somehow retired from the ministry, not a chance. He's still alive today. Let's pray to him now. Father, I just uh, ask that as Jesus would pray to you and um, show us how to pray, that we want to say, God, thank you for being our Father, that our Father who lives in heaven, who is so powerful and yet so close. Uh, There's no one like you. There's no one as powerful as your name. And we want your kingdom come, your will to be done. Just as the angels run in line to get in place so that they can be obedient, we want to be the same way. I'm asking you that you would meet the needs of our church family right now, especially in crazy times that we're experiencing right now in our culture. Would you meet our needs? And, and God, for those where we have excess, help us look around to see who we can bless, God. Uh, help us to work on all our relationships where we're forgiving those that we're at odds with and find reconciliation. We've been shown grace by you. Help us show grace to others, God. Uh, help us not get stuck in a temptation. Help us see it from a, a mile off and run from it. Keep us from the evil one who wants to take us out. And, and yet let all of our lives just be full of glory uh, to you and who are still in all of the miraculous things that you did while you were alive here on earth and what you did uh, to resurrect um, your son, Jesus. Um, but also as you've sent your Holy Spirit to come into our lives, that you have not retired from the ministry and you're still doing amazing things today. So God, I pray for those who are watching uh, this course online or listening to the podcast, taking notes and thinking through this, helping us, uh, helping them understand the truth of what your gospels teach about Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would cause all of our, our souls just to rise in all of who you are, what you can do. And uh, may we say, if our God is for us, well, what can stand against us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining me tonight. We will uh, catch back uh, next week as we continue on. And next week, we're going to be looking at the disciples. And I cannot wait to share with you then. Hope to see you next time. Okay, bye.